Hey everybody, Jared Books here, broadcasting live from the lobby of the A History of Maryland Infotainment Funplex. This is Episode 5, Irish Interlude. You may remember from the last episode that this was all supposed to be one big episode, but I had to cut it in half at the last second. So if you haven't listened to Episode 4 yet, you may want to go back in order to get some context for what's going on in this episode. If you don't want to, hey, no problem. We'll just get down to it. This here is a rule-free zone, where fun is king. Hold on a second. Hey, kid! No running in the lobby! Sorry about that. Spoiled, rotten little bastards. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. If everyone's nestled snugly back into their seats, I think it's time to bring Sir George Calvert out onto the stage. That's why we're here, after all, to flesh out the few pathetic scraps of info we have about Calvert's time in Ireland as best we can, and breathe just a little bit of life into it. You may remember that Calvert's very first royal appointment was as clerk of the court for Connacht in 1606, Connacht being a province in Western Ireland. Well, what does that job entail? Well, I tried to scratch a little deeper on this than I did back in episode 1.2, where I described it as... An administrative, paper-pushing job at a far-off branch of the royal court system. There's no way that description's ever going to come back to haunt me. Because that's what clerks do. And I couldn't seem to get anything but the vaguest descriptions of what the job entailed. I still can't. And as we'll see, there may be a good reason for this. Now, I was a little more successful at digging up a bit of context. John D. Krugler describes Calvert's position as Clerk of the Crown and Assizes in Connaught and County Clare, which is our lead, because starting around 1605, James is very keen in bringing English law to the farthest flung reaches of Ireland, and Connacht and Clare were about as far as you can fling in those days. So there's a big push by the Crown in promoting judges and the like to set up circuits in those regions. Today we go to a circuit court building, but the name and the system originates from the days when the judges would travel to you. They'd hold court in your town or a regional administrative center and deal with all of the cases that had piled up there since the last time they had come through. And then they'd pack up and move on to the next administration center on their circuit. Well, getting these courts up and running in Ireland becomes something of a focus for the crown for a few years. And there's a lot of patronage being doled out for those who are willing to sign up. Some of the judges would be knighted for their service. And apparently, there's something of a stink at the time that these Irish circuit court positions were being packed by a good old boy network from those who had studied law at Lincoln's Inn. And guess where Calvert studied law? Well, what part does Calvert play in this? Originally, I spent several paragraphs weighing out whether the job actually involved him traveling to Connacht or whether he was doing the requisite pencil pushing from London where he was based. I was fascinated by the idea of him actually following these judges around the Irish outback for a few years. And I even tried matching up the circuit court season with the birth of Calvert's children. You know, could he have traveled back home in time to be making these babies? But then all of my middle school junior detective work was blown out of the water by one sentence and one source, which included the words, In 1606, Calvert was granted the reversion of an Irish sinecure. And well, heck, I should have known. Despite every previous source I'd read claiming he had got the job in 1606, 
What he'd really got was a reversion to the position, which means he was guaranteed the job upon the death of the current holder. According to the same source, thehistoryofparliament.org, Calvert wouldn't actually hold the job of Clerk of the Crown in Connacht until 1614, and when he died, he'd pass the position on to his son, Leonard. What did this job entail? Nothing. Or nearly nothing. That's what a sinecure is. It's a position requiring little or no work, but giving the holder status or financial benefit. So it's just a bit of political patronage, probably granted out to Calvert by Robert Cecil. There's no real job to work, it's just a fancy title and a modest income to be suckled from the public tit. As a quick aside, the history of Parliament.org is an interesting source. Being English, they have none of the basic respect or reverence that American sources have for their colonial founding fathers. Sir George Calvert is a forgettable minnow in the great sea of English history, and their article on him, while chock full of info, manages to cast him and his career in a fairly pathetic and ineffectual light of continual disappointment. And while this is a fascinating and important counterbalance to the built-in assumptions of American histories, I have to admit, it makes me kind of defensive. It reeks of a certain snobby pro-parliamentary bias, which shouldn't be too surprising considering the source, but it does make me question some of their interpretations. That said, on the topic of the true nature of Calvert's position as Clerk of the Crown, I'd bet my last can of warm Natty Bow ice they got this right. Just rings true, and it's how things really worked. Calvert was a creature of court at a time when offices were literally bought and sold on the expectation that the office holder could make a profit off of it. Remember, Calvert sold his position as Secretary of State for something like 3,000 pounds. Using court positions to dole out favors and skim funds in one way or another is obviously implied with any appointment. It all looks super corrupt to us today, and I still think it kind of is. But keep in mind, in those days, a lot of the day-to-day -day costs of running your office came out of your personal funds with no guarantee you'd ever get paid back, especially in the Stuart era. There are all sorts of examples of governors and the like being financially ruined because they never got paid even the basic salary they'd been promised. If you read the calendar state papers from this era, half the entries are from some noble officeholder begging for money or special favors. Also, I'm not trying to claim that every clerk of the court or crown position was a sinecure. I think there were all sorts of people running around with that job description, and some of them may have actually done things. But I think in Calvert's case, at best, he probably signed or sealed something a couple times a year for a salary or for a cut of the fees and the fines that were being leveled by the courts in Connacht. When Calvert's name is next connected to Irish policy in 1613, the job will be a little more substantial and real. And it would definitely involve him traveling for a few months to Dublin and personally wading into many of the most pressing political issues in Ireland at the time. And the contextual backdrop for this trip would involve new land confiscations in North Wexford and the first Irish Parliament to be held in 27 years. If Queen Elizabeth's legacy in Ireland was the piecemeal military conquest and subjugation of the various provinces, King James's legacy would be the attempt at a legal and administrative conquest of the entire island. As the Ulster Plantation was beginning to break ground, he would set about using these new towns, boroughs, and bishoprics under English control to pack the Irish Parliament with Protestant MPs. James needed a pliable and friendly Parliament in Ireland. First, so he can pass a slew of new laws expanding English and royal dominion. 
along with legislation aimed at curbing Catholicism. He also needed the Irish Parliament as a source of revenue, particularly since the English Parliament was starting to get very uppity and stingy with the purse strings. So an Irish Parliament was to be slated for 1613. But he would find stiff resistance to the Protestant takeover of Parliament from the old English Catholics, who still wielded significant political power. The elections themselves were highly contentious, and the opening of Parliament resulted in a scuffling on the floor between Catholics and Protestants over who would be Speaker. Thanks to the slew of new boroughs packing the Parliament with Protestants, they had a clear majority in both houses. But they still had to physically pry the Catholic candidate from the Speaker's chair. And the Irish Catholics from both the Commons and the Lords staged a walkout. These Catholic Lords would petition James with their complaints directly. And James would put together a commission to head to Dublin in August 1613 in order to investigate the grievances. This commission would include Arthur Chichester, the current Lord Deputy in Ireland, two experienced judges who are working in Ireland, also Sir Charles Cornwallis, former ambassador to Spain, who had probably been relieved of his position for his lack of exuberance for the Spanish match. This Cornwallis is thought by some sources to be the grandfather of Thomas Cornwallis, who will be a major personality in the early years of the province of Maryland. He's also the ancestor of another Sir Charles Cornwallis, the first Marquis Cornwallis, of Revolutionary War, surrendering at Yorktown fame. As for our Sir Charles Cornwallis, within a year of this commission, he'll be doing time in the Tower for stirring up opposition over in the English Parliament. And it's maybe for this reason that the fifth member of this royal commission, a fresh-faced clerk of the Privy Council named George Calvert, was sent to tag along. Calvert was free from any Irish political entanglements at the time and could be depended upon to be the eyes, ears, and the voice of the king's interests throughout the proceedings. The commission would set up shop in Dublin and throw open their doors to any petitioners. Their primary job was to investigate irregularities in the election process and any of the other issues that led to the Catholic walkout. Long story short, the commission would overturn a few token elections in the Catholics' favor but basically reached the foregone conclusion that the Irish didn't have a pot to pee in, and that they'd better get back in line if they knew what was good for them. After which, King James could sweep in and magnanimously shave off a few more Protestant MPs from the majority, and hint at some potential religious toleration down the road. Whatever it took to get the Catholic members of Parliament to sit back down and vote him up some money. And the Irish Parliament would eventually convene in 1614. Over the next four months, the Royal Commission would get involved in other issues. They would investigate the state of religion in Ireland and come to the conclusion that Catholicism was way out of hand and that the Church of Ireland wasn't nearly effective enough in quashing it. And they'd recommend a much stricter enforcement of conformity. And this is often used as one of the examples of Calvert's own conformity to Anglican Protestantism at the time. If he had any secret Catholic leanings at this point, they didn't get in the way of enforcing the state church. Another contentious issue the commission would be embroiled in was King James's latest plantation scheme, this time in northern county Wexford. It will kick off a new and often overlooked round of land confiscation that will be so morally and legally suspect that even 19th century British histories will find fault with it. And it will be considered one of the major reasons that an uprising in 1641 will spread into a great rebellion. When James ascended the throne, he created the Commission for the Remedying of Defective Titles. It was created ostensibly to empower and aid Irish landholders in the process of making their titles legal under current English law. A continuation of the surrender and regrant model, 
which would in theory secure the homes, the investments, and the incomes of these Irish landowners. It also theoretically gave the lesser Irish landholders a way to get out from under the thumb of their chieftains and the game of musical chairs that could be played with their property ownership under the clan system. But it wouldn't take long for this commission of defective titles to become weaponized as an instrument of land confiscation. When a bunch of landholders in northern Wexford surrendered their lands in 1609, the regrant was held up on the technicality of being submitted too late. And then the derndest thing happened. The king's officials did a little bit of research into the subject and discovered, to their surprise, that these lands had once belonged to the crown. And that some lands that had been English two or three centuries ago had been reconquered by native Irish chieftains. Now, the fact that every English king and queen since had accepted submissions from these chiefs may imply that they had rights to these lands. But technically, the law is the law. Once crown lands, always crown lands. Even if Queen Elizabeth accepted their submission, that just meant it was the crown's lands to accept or deny. And that means now they were James's lands. To prove that the law was the law, a local jury would be impaneled in Wexford to legitimize to the people of Wexford the foregone conclusion that was deciding in the king's favor. Only this jury wouldn't decide in the king's favor. They found his 300-year-old claims to the land a bit suspect. So these jurors were sent before the court of the Exchequer. And this was a royal court involved in the king's revenue and finances, not some podunk Wexford court. And the message was clear. We will ask you again, slowly, do you find in favor of the king? Eleven of the jurors would take the hint and suddenly see the validity of the king's claims. But five of the jurors wouldn't, and they would be imprisoned. Those jurors who were free to head back to Wexford duly voted in favor of the king's title. Surprise, surprise. Kind of makes you wonder why they bothered with the jury in the first place. But I guess the concept of checks and balances between the branches of government at this time was still in the pupa stage. Plantation was initially given the green light in North Wexford. But the protestations of the native Irish and the old English landowners were so vociferous that James would be forced to use that commission in Dublin to investigate the grievances and help to justify his schemes. In 1613, Calvert and the commission would dutifully record the Irish complaints. They would recommend a recalibration of the acreages of the land to be doled out to benefit a few more of the Irish. But they'd ultimately be reinforcing the king's claims and the plantation process itself. This wouldn't end the legal battles. There'd be at least four more years of land flip-flopping around the courts and commissions, and James pulling 180s based on each new bit of evidence and testimony, without anyone being secure in their current titles. Until eventually, the authorities begin to tire of it all and lock up protesters and threaten them with deportation to Virginia. The plantation in North Wexford would go ahead, with two important aspects for us. One is that the largest chunk of land by far would go to a Sir Richard Masterson. The Mastersons were an English family who had spent at least a few generations in North Wexford going toe-to-toe -to -toe with regional native Irish families like the Cavanaugh's. They were constables and sheriffs there at a time when local law enforcement could resemble something like blood feud and gang warfare. And the Mastersons had spent a lot of time, money, and effort cracking skulls and laying down something that looked vaguely like English law in the area, and they needed to be duly rewarded. It's probably here in Dublin that Calvert first meets Masterson, and they will definitely meet again a few years later down the road. The other important aspect of the Wexford Plantation was how it set the bar for future land confiscations. Up until this point, there was a certain bit of contextual justification for the plantations. 
I mean, look, after submitting to the English crown, you've rebelled repeatedly and consistently. Thus, you have forfeited your ownership of the land. Them's the rules. But beginning with Wexford, the rules get rewritten. Nobody here was in rebellion. They had generally been conforming in some degree to English culture and farming techniques, and they had some decent arguments that their titles had been held in a way consistent with English common law. Conversely, the king's claims were increasingly dubious, and the process of surveying and distribution of the sheeted land grew increasingly underhanded and shady. In concrete terms, even those Irish who were granted back some land usually got less than they had before, and it was usually of a poorer quality. And King James had this notion that small-time landholders beggared the country, and he'd ban anything under 60 to 100 acres in the redistribution schemes. So that whole lower rung of Irish freeholders lose everything without compensation. And they'll join the growing ranks of landless tenants at will whose housing, food, and legal protection depended on the whims of any landlord who would take them in. Others would join the ranks of outlaws, rebels, raiders, and desperados eking out an existence in the forest, bogs, and hills. They were known to the English as the woodkern, and they'd terrorize English colonists living on their former lands. Then there'd often be a vicious and indiscriminate reprisal from English soldiers, and the whole thing just got as ugly as all get out. From many Irish perspectives, the entire history of the English in Ireland is one great litany of inequality and injustice, from the first Norman invasions to the 1980s and beyond. But even a few contemporary English perspectives view the handling of the Wexford plantation as inherently unjust and scandalous, which is interesting. The 19th century and turn-of-the-century English sources I used for this episode universally condemn the greed and the duplicitous reasoning used to confiscate land from those who had surrendered it in good faith. These histories were written at the height of the British Empire, and they have few of the hang-ups we have today about colonialism. And they took seriously the civilizing angle of British imperial and colonial rhetoric. Which is why, from their view, it was the corruption of the rule of law and the sanctity of property that is seen as the great mistake the English made in their civilizing mission in Ireland. After Wexford, no Irishman would trust in the essential decency of English law. Also in 19th century histories, they knew what was coming down the pike in 1641, and they needed reasons to explain it. In George Calvert's time, the outright carnage of the Elizabethan era was over, things were settling down, the economy in Ireland was looking up, and the plantations were starting to bloom. But it was all built upon a massive amount of smoldering resentment. There's a quaint little spot in old Ireland, a place that I'm longing to see, to walk through the green fields of Longford. The next stop on the Plantation Palooza tour would be in County Longford. This was the land of the O'Farrells. And much like in Wexford, the native landowners had been mostly loyal, they'd been adopting English ways, they could argue decent claims to the land for centuries that had not only been recognized by Queen Elizabeth, but by James himself. He had previously sided with the O'Farrells against English land speculators with their own claims on the land. In 1615, that would all change. And James would opt for confiscation and plantation based on another dubious 300-year-old claim to the land. And it's not hard to guess why. The previous year, James had mostly been stiffed by parliaments in England and Ireland. He needed money and land to do his kingly thing and to dole out patronage to loyal servants and to soldiers. But no worries. 
James was only interested in taking one quarter of the land for plantation. A full three quarters would be granted back to the natives. Of course, it'd be less land than they had before. It'd be somewhere different than they were before, and it probably wouldn't be as good a quality as they had before. Also, once again, that whole bottom rung of landowners would be bumped down to renter status with no compensation. And well, once you read the fine print, the natives wouldn't actually be getting three quarters back. It's from those lands that the new English towns would be built, where costs of surveying would be deferred, and where patronage would be doled out to a select few of James's most loyal and hard-working servants. And one of these would be then-Secretary of State Sir George Calvert, who'd be granted a sweet slice of that Longford land in 1621. And here's where we're going to disembark from the plantation bus. The process of confiscation and plantation will continue in other parts of Ireland for many years, but we're reaching the end of Calvert's political career and his connection with the process itself. But Sir George will fit nicely into yet another angle of James's attempts to terraform Ireland into a British kingdom. We've heard about James promoting circuit courts to bring English law to the furthest reaches of Ireland. We've heard about the plantations being used to fill the land with British colonists and culture. We've seen him pack the Irish Parliament with Protestants. And another thing he'd be doing that's connected to all of this would be to grant an enormous amount of noble titles within Ireland. He'd all but triple the peerage in Ireland, filling the land with new barons and earls and the like. Part of the reason for this was financial. Many men bought the privilege from the king. And it was yet another way to make ends meet without having to rely on Parliament. James was also creating a new landed aristocracy in Ireland, one who owed their positions, and thus their loyalty, specifically to the king. And in early 1625, after Calvert sold his position as Secretary of State, he was granted the shiny new title of the First Baron of Baltimore. Now the history books almost universally represent this as Calvert being gifted the title in recognition of his years of loyal service. But don't be too surprised or disappointed if it turns out a whole bunch of money changed hands in order to achieve this. Again, this is the way things worked, and honorable service and payoffs to the crown aren't necessarily mutually exclusive ideals at this point. Especially when your king is the brokest, wisest fool in Christendom. So Sir George Calvert is definitely part of this new policy of empowering a loyal English culture in Ireland. And like many of these newer English landlords, Calvert was mostly an absentee from his Irish estates. But that's all about to change. Fleeing the plague and the pendulum of court politics, Calvert would cross over with his family into Ireland in late May or early June of 1625. He's off the political radar until September. We're not sure exactly what he's up to. But he may have been visiting those two estates of his in County Longford. These two estates were named Elfeet and Baltimore. And it's from his estate where the peerage name Lord Baltimore derives, not specifically from the Irish town of Baltimore way down south on the coast of County Cork. The name Baltimore is an anglicization of an older Gaelic name, which I guess I should be thankful for. Longtime listeners will know that I have only the most tenuous grasp of pronouncing English, let alone something as mystifying as any of the Gaelic languages. To me, it's like trying to speak Elvish or something. I try to find online examples of people pronouncing things the right way, but I can't always find specific examples of every word. And there are regional dialects and variants in pronunciation. So what I'm trying to say is that I will be brutalizing Gaelic throughout this podcast, and I'm sorry. I have no tongue for it. 
Anyway, Baltimore is the anglicization of something like Balia Antimore, which is usually translated as Town of the Big House. Whether Calvert is naming his estate after the town in Cork, or whether he's just bragging about the size of his house there, or whether Calvert named it at all, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not really sure of much of anything he gets up to in Longford at this point. His lands there sound fairly extensive. John D. Krugler cites about 2,300 acres of arable and pasture land and about 1,600 acres of woodland and bog, with castles and villages dotted throughout, which all sounds gorgeous. But I've also read a few sources suggesting Longford was basically bandit country around this time, being poor and sparsely populated. So, not necessarily somewhere to settle down with a wife and kids. We know the original grant had religious restrictions, as part of the anglifying plantation process which brought this grant about, there was only supposed to be Protestant tenants. But after Calvert converts to Catholicism, he's able to get the restrictions lifted, all of which suggests he has plans for this property. But I haven't been able to find a thing about it, and whether his Longford estates were too poor, too dangerous, or just too far from the action, Calvert wouldn't be staying there. He may have sold the land, but I haven't seen anything yet which suggests it. Most likely what George Calvert did was to rent out the land to a person or a company of persons who could best exploit the local resources, whether it's timber or wool or some kind of cash crop or all three. And this would be standard operating procedure for these absentee landlords for centuries. I simply have not been able to find out yet. And I've only read so far ahead in the story of the Calverts, so the answer may pop up later in research down the road. If so, I will pass it along. When George Calvert does reappear in the historical record in September 1625, he'll pop up in the southeast of Ireland, in County Wexford. And he'd come calling on Sir Richard Masterson, who he'd probably met in Dublin back in 1613, and he was looking to buy some land off of him. This location made a lot more sense for Calvert. It was closer to the sea, closer to Dublin, closer to England, relatively safer, and already had something of an English Catholic community there. Sources diverge on whether Sir Richard Masterson himself was a Catholic. If he wasn't, he didn't seem to have any issues with selling land to one, or with graciously providing Lord and Lady Baltimore with the use of his castle at Ferns while they waited for their new manor to be built. The ruins of this castle still exist, and I will pop a picture up on the Facebook page of it. For £1,600 sterling, Calvert would buy lands for his new estate at Clomont. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. That's how the one online pronunciation I could find said it. But it's spelled like it should be pronounced Clohamon. Or for you Balmeries, Clohamon. There are various figures floating around as to the size of the new estate. James Littleton puts Calvert's Clomond Manor at 1,600 acres. Other sources suggest figures between 4,000 and 5,000 acres, which seems a bit steep to me. But it's been repeated, so maybe there's something to it. Calvert's new manor house most likely utilized the bawn and the towers of a pre-existing castle in Clomond, which once belonged to the Cavanaughs. And this would make sense both for defense and to cut down on building costs. A settlement had existed at Clomond long before the Calverts ever bought the land, but under their stewardship, it would become the largest settlement in North Wexford for a time, meaning you could maybe just be able to call it a small town. There was farmland and salmon in the rivers, but the primary produce of the manor would be timber, oak. And throughout the life of Cecil Calvert, the manor would be rented out to various men and companies for the bargain basement price of 400 pounds sterling a year, 
This was likely to encourage investment and to get the renters to pony up for improvements to infrastructure, like the building of mills and ironworks. Construction on the manor house seems to have been completed by the winter of 1626 at the latest, and Sir George and the fam were finally able to settle down into their new digs. Let's do a bit of catching up with Calvert's family. It's been a while since we've checked in. Not since episode 1.2 to be exact. And I've recently discovered a great little source that has about as much as you can hope to find on Calvert's children. It's Tobacco or Codfish, Lord Baltimore Makes His Choice. It's a transcription and analysis of a letter Calvert wrote from Avalon in 1629. And we will be referencing it heavily then. But the notes in the back of this book are extensive and they have been invaluable in solving a few of the mysteries surrounding Calvert's family that have been plaguing me since I first started researching over a year ago. And well, we'll start with the bad news. It's the early 17th century. Life is still nasty, brutish, and short. Half of Calvert's children won't survive past their early 20s. At least four will die before he does. John dies either in his infancy in 1619 or he's the pregnancy which kills Anne Min in 1622. Sources diverge on that. Dorothy will die around age 15, in either 1623 or 1624. So this is yet another tragedy you can heap onto Sir George Calvert during those crisis years for him, at the tail end of his political career, and just before his conversion. Elizabeth has pretty much disappeared from the record at this point in the narrative as well. She isn't named in any of the letters along with the other children, and she isn't named in any subsequent family wills, so she is presumed to have died, probably in her teens. Three more of his children will die before 1636, all sons in their teens and early 20s. Henceforth, I will try to work what little I know about them and the circumstances of their deaths into the narrative as it happens. But for now, life must go on. While in Ireland, Calvert will pack off a few of his younger sons to school in Waterford. And over the next several years, he'd begin to marry off his surviving daughters into the local peerage and gentry. And marriage at this point, especially for aristocrats or landed gentry, isn't really about love or choice. It's about social climbing, a social safety net, and trying to get a brood of moody teenagers out from under your feet when you're the CEO of a family dynasty with estates from Yorkshire to Newfoundland. And it was a serious duty. Calvert's eldest son, Cecil, risked losing his inheritance if he didn't marry well within a specific time frame. And we'll definitely be getting into that marriage in a later episode. But here's what I've been able to confirm about his surviving daughters. Daughter Grace Calvert would be married around 1627 to Sir Robert Talbot, second baronet of Carton, County Kildare. He's part of the old English Catholic gentry, who'll be embroiled in local politics for decades to come. It had actually been Sir Robert Talbot's father, the first baronet of Carton, who had led the Old English resistance to the Protestant takeover of the Irish Parliament in 1613, and he'd been jailed for it, all while Calvert was on that commission recommending harsher justice against the Irish Catholics. But it's all water under the bridge now. In case you're wondering, yes, it is Lady Grace Talbot who'll be lending her name to Talbot County in Maryland. See, I told you this was a history of Maryland. Speaking of Talbots, the youngest daughter, Helen Calvert, will eventually be married in 1635 to James Talbot, an English Catholic with an estate in Ulster. 
an estate that would be seized from Talbot after the Irish Rebellion of 1641 due to his Catholicism. Their son would be Colonel George Talbot, who'd own estates in Maryland and who'd infamously murder one of the king's tax collectors there on Halloween night, 1684. Then he'd subsequently escape his Virginia prison and reportedly live in a cave using trained falcons to catch his food for him while he was on the lam. And holy crap, that's awesome. I wish I hadn't just found out about that, or I had made it a little Halloween special. Next year, for sure. But if you want to know more, just Google Colonel George Talbot. A bunch of versions of the story will pop up. Incidentally, I'm not actually sure whether Robert Talbot and James Talbot were related by blood in any way before marrying into the Calverts. I did a bit of genealogy sight diving to try and find out, and before I knew it, they were Talbots marrying Talbots, and there were Talbots with one T, and Talbots were two, and my eyes started crossing, and I could feel an aneurysm coming on, and I just gave up. It was just like the whole Aston Ashton debacle in the last episode all over again. Either way, we're dealing with landed Catholic Anglo-Irish families, who may or may not be slightly inbred. Another Anglo-Irishman who'd be drawn into Calvert's orbit was William Peasley Esquire of the Peasleys of Kildare. Peasley couldn't bring any land into the deal, but Calvert saw something in the man and brought him into the household, where Peasley would prove himself such a useful and loyal agent for Calvert's interests that he would be given daughter Anne's hand in marriage by sometime around 1628. William Peasley will be a reoccurring side character for the next decade or so of the narrative, so let's welcome him to the podcast. Come with me now to the Irish countryside in early summer of 1625. Rebirth and renewal are in the air. The blooming flowers sway to a gentle breeze. Birds are whistling in the trees. Nobody is currently being murdered in their beds by an uprising of the oppressed Gaelic-Irish underclass. The scene is set, my friends, for love. Sometime in 1625, most likely in that historical blank space in Ireland between June 1625 and September 1625, Calvert would once more tie the knot. The lucky little lady would be Dame Joan Calvert, now officially the first Lady Baltimore. And Joan gets an epically raw deal by history. We'll catch but a flicker of her shadow and a few scribbled letters and accounts, half of them written by jerks. And what little we will see will ultimately be tragic. The best I can do is try and discern why so little is known, and maybe vicariously find out a few things about her. We don't know exactly when they were married. We don't know her maiden name or anything about her family. There are but a few rumors written years later, often tinged with a whiff of scandal. Some people at the time will refer to both Joan and the son she had with Calvert as illegitimate. And all this dovetails nicely with the few assumptions we can make. What Lady Joan's memory has going against her, history-wise, are religion and class. There is no record of their wedding because they had a Catholic ceremony. There would be no documentation or official recognition from the Church of England or the Church of Ireland. And even within the Catholic Church in Ireland, and more especially in England, this wedding would have been off the record, on the QT, and very hush-hush. Even amongst Catholics, there might be questions of legitimacy. It goes back to that controversy going on between the regular and secular clergy. Did these priests have the legitimate authority to administer the sacraments? If a random Jesuit performed the wedding ceremony, was it legit? A lot of seculars would say no. 
And this is very much what is going to happen in about six years when Calvert gets himself heavily involved with this controversy and heavily involved with Captain Edward Wynne's daughter, Mary. Then there's the issue of class, because rumor has it, Joan was the Calvert's kitchen maid. Again, six years down the road, Calvert is going to seriously piss off a faction of Catholic priests in England and France, and they are going to revel in gossiping about this stuff. And there will be an almost identical scenario at that exact time with Calvert and another young lady in his household, the aforementioned Mary Wynne. So either these priests are mixing up their stories, or Calvert has a soft spot for his servants. And you can be very cynical about this. Rich old guy can't keep his hands off the help, and he's just religious enough that he feels he has to marry anyone he's trying to have a physical relationship with. And there may be something to that. But I'm going to wait till 1631-1632 and the story of Mary Wynne to explore that angle. Because it's much more of an actual scandalous situation. In the case of Joan, I'm definitely going to argue the other way. There probably was a certain class discrepancy here. If nothing else, the absence of her family from the picture seems highly suggestive to me. We have no idea who they are, and they never seem to come into the picture later on down the line, in regards to wills or anything of that sort. But I personally doubt Joan was some waif snatched from the home of a London fishwife or something. I'd be willing to wager she's probably coming from the lesser gentry, just like Calvert started out. Getting her start in a richer, more connected household could bring opportunities. And obviously they did, because now she's married to an Irish baron. Now the interesting angle for me is Calvert going for all this. He's fairly obsessive about his reputation and his own place on the social ladder, as well as his family's. He's constantly concerned about money. And it seems to me this would have been a perfect time for him to try and hook up with some rich old Catholic widower or the daughter of some prestigious old English family in Ireland. With that comes a dowry and more connections. So there's some reason he doesn't want to get personally involved with any of that. Maybe he was just fooling around with his kitchen maid and, well, you know, knocked her up. We don't know exactly when their son was born, 1626-ish, but Calvert would hardly be the first respectable gentleman to land himself in that situation, and I imagine he could have slithered out of having to get married over it with relative ease. So it would still be fairly remarkable that he did marry her. So I think what we might have here is just a good old-fashioned love story. And for Joan's sake, I hope that's what it was. Because her time with us will be short and troubled. But she will literally follow Calvert to the ends of the earth over the next five years. And she will bear him a son, Philip. And Philip will live to play his part in the narrative of Maryland further on down the line. All of this family bliss and the work on the new manor must have been a welcome distraction to Calvert, who was no doubt consumed by desperate impatience for news from his Avalon colony, a sentiment I can relate to because we are now entering one of the most murky and mysterious bits of the entire narrative. There are only a few scraps of information in regards to Avalon and Sir Arthur Aston over the next couple of years, and almost every bit of it comes from Father Simon Stock, and his often diluted correspondence with the Propaganda Fide. Once again, I'm leaning heavily on Luca Cagnola's The Coldest Harbor of the Land, and he's done the most legwork on trying to piece together any sort of structure to these couple of years in Avalon's history. Sir Arthur Aston departed for Avalon in May 1625, reportedly with 15 to 20 Catholics on board. 
As we discussed in the last episode, the former governor, Captain Edward Wynne, wasn't working out for one reason or another. And Aston was heading to the colony to deliver his own assessment of the situation and to decide whether or not to stay on for the winter. And everyone with a stake in the venture waited breathlessly for what Aston had to say. The answer comes in October 1625, in the form of a letter from Aston that was either delivered by the return voyage of the ship he had been lent to get there, or by an English fishing vessel heading home. Newfoundland fishing vessels tended to come home in October because anyone with generations of experience fishing those waters knew how bad the winters could suck. Keep that in mind for future discussions. Now getting to and from Newfoundland at this time took about a month and a half-ish. So we can surmise Aston took a couple of months getting the lay of the land before writing back. And he didn't return with the letter, so we know he spent the winter of 1625-1626 at the Avalon settlement of Fairyland. Now, theoretically, there should have either been multiple letters, or at the very least, the letter should have gone directly to Calvert in Ireland. But none of Aston's letters survive. The only hint we have of it comes from a letter addressed to propaganda sent by Father Simon Stock. And I'll read the pertinent bits here in their entirety. My most illustrious and reverend honored warships, the island of which I have written to your most illustrious warships is so pleasing to this knight, our dear friend who went thither in the spring, that he is established there, and I have procured him the governorship of the same island. And he sends marvelous reports of the island and the wonderful abundance of fish. The natives are few and of a benign disposition, intending no harm to foreigners, though idolaters all. I fervently hope that your most illustrious warships will not fail to send missionaries for this mission, as you have promised. And well, that's it. That's pretty much all we know about the year or so Sir Arthur Aston spent in Avalon. A few words coming at us second or third hand from a very biased source. I love that bit about Stock being the one that made Sir Arthur Aston the governor of Avalon. I'd bet my last bag of Utz crab chips he had little to nothing to do with it. But remember, Stock is trying to sell the idea of Avalon as a Catholic refuge to the propaganda fide and that he was the big wheel making it all happen in England. And what strikes me about it is just how much it sounds like previous descriptions of Newfoundland, a la Sir Richard Whitbourne and Captain Edward Wynne. The fish just jump into your boat here, you wouldn't believe how fertile the soil is here, and the natives are as docile as puppies and they just can't wait to be converted. The only thing that's missing is the bit about how favorably mild the winters are, because Aston sent the letter before he spent the winter there. I just really wish a letter directly from Aston to Calvert survived. I think we'd at least have a slightly better idea of what was going on. But alas, we do not. The next thing we know, Aston is returning to England with the other Catholics sometime between June and October of 1626. Well, why? Was a one-year stint the plan all along? Was it part of the agreement with the Crown to use their ships? Unfortunately, we have no word on whether or not Aston was able to bring back any elks and hawks from Newfoundland, as per the king's request. Had the colony been abandoned? Luca Cagnola doesn't seem to think so. He assumes the previous Protestant settlers of the Edward Wynne governorship were still there minding the store, which may be the case, but I'm not so sure they were even there when Aston first arrived. The number of settlers at Avalon at any given time is just one of those really soupy aspects of the colonial history. 
And we'll do a more in-depth review and analysis of all that when we actually reach the Colony of Avalon in the narrative. What we can assume is that it wasn't the prospect of spending a second winter in Newfoundland that had been some sort of deal killer. Because according to both Calvert and Stock, Sir Arthur Aston and company were ready and willing to return to Avalon in early 1627. So for the time being, with what we know taken at face value, Sir Arthur Aston has given his thumbs up on Calvert's colony and signaled to everyone involved that this was still a venture worth investing in. But securing ships for a return to the colony was proving difficult. This mostly has to do with the renewed war with Spain, which had already led to a massive military disaster for the English at Cadiz in November of 1625. And the fallout from the disaster would lead to a showdown between the English Parliament and the King when the opposition once again set their collective sights on taking down Buckingham. And our next episode will get way more into that. But here and now in Ireland, it led to Calvert feeling some of the ripple effects from this broader political stage. Ireland was abuzz with fear and apprehension of what many thought was the inevitable invasion of the island by the Spanish. It was coming. It was just a matter of time. Official correspondence was awash with rumors of invasion fleets being made ready in Spanish harbors as well as fearful missives from Irish towns to the Lord Deputy admitting just how unprepared they were if and when a Spanish invasion should arrive. In September of 1626, King Charles declared that Ireland was to raise the size of their standing army to 5,000 foot soldiers and 500 horse in order to counter this threat, and that it was up to the Irish to find a way to pay for it all. Those who were for this military Irish scheme argued that there were all of these idle and landless Irishmen of fighting age just hanging about. And if we didn't find something constructive for them to do, the Spanish would. Now on the one hand, this is an old tactic. You may remember King James's scheme of sending Catholic Irish soldiers to places like Poland to fight the Turks. Beyond the lofty romantic notions of a Christian crusade, there was the tangible benefit of getting a potentially rebellious demographic out of your kingdom. But with this new Irish scheme, those Irish soldiers would be used directly by the English to defend Ireland. And those opposed to the idea were a little leery about arming and training a bunch of guys whose lands were just confiscated and then leaving them to hang around. The real problem, no matter where you stood on the issue, was that bit about the Irish paying for it all. Fact is, they couldn't remotely afford the small standing army which already existed in Ireland, something like 1,600 men men who were already barely sheltered and fed and hadn't been paid in months. And what ends up happening is the things the army needs, it takes from the locals. And this is either through the official purchase of food and goods with worthless IOUs, or through outright seizure and extortion. And the crown is proposing to more than triple the size of this force? God save the king. What's more, Ireland's become the receptacle for many of the survivors of the Cadiz expedition. They're mostly wretched conscripts who were just dumped off on the streets of Irish coastal towns and left to starve and die of dysentery. Many did. But less conveniently, many others would just roam like packs of wolves, snatching whatever they could from the Irish to survive. Edward Villiers, half-brother to the Duke of Buckingham, was Lord President of Munster at this time. And he'd send letters to everyone he could, begging them to do something about this. You know, look, this is a crisis. We need to feed these guys and pay these guys. And he'd end up ruining himself financially trying to help some of the officers of the expedition. And he'd ultimately die in 1626, probably from one of the epidemics tearing its way through the ranks of the soldiers, 
and anyone who got too close to them. At this point, King Charles is in the middle of a full-blown parliamentary crisis over in England. With an English parliament, who were all about this war with Spain until Charles actually pulled the trigger, then suddenly they didn't want to pay for it. From Charles's perspective, the money is there. Access is being blocked by an obdurate parliament. In England, Charles has little or no leverage over the parliament to work with, but in Ireland, he has a few humble cards to play. From his British subjects there, he could hope that all of the patronage his dad had been spreading around the island since 1603 could be parlayed into a little bit of loyalty to the king. As for everyone else, he had the matters of grace and bounty. This was a scattershot list of benefits and reforms that Irish subjects of all walks of life could expect from their king if they played along and ponied up the requisite money and supplies to fund the Irish army. Sprinkled throughout the original list of graces, you can find limited forms of toleration towards Catholics. And this will begin a long political dance between King Charles and his Irish subjects, where he dangles the prospect of religious toleration in Ireland in return for granting him subsidies and generally playing nice. But the immediate and perfectly predictable reaction would come from Protestants on both sides of the Irish Sea, who were appalled by the idea. To the opposition in the English Parliament, it became yet another example of Charles getting into bed with Catholics. And in Ireland, 12 Anglican bishops from the Church of Ireland, which Charles was theoretically the head of, would come together and publicly condemn toleration as a sin, and compare Charles's attempts to trade graces for the money with Judas selling out Jesus for the money. Ouch. So this whole business of funding an army in Ireland was not going to be an easy one. And Sir George Calvert would find himself in the midst of it all throughout 1626 and early 1627. This is partly because of his reputation as a respected statesman, and partly because he needed to keep his toe in the water with the king's court if he still wanted to be able to pull any strings, like securing ships for Sir Arthur Aston's return to Avalon. There are at least two surviving letters from Calvert to the Duke of Buckingham at this time, recorded in the Calendar State Papers. In the first letter, Calvert thanks Buckingham for favors shown to him and to his sons, and I would love to know what those favors were. But it shows Calvert still had a relatively cordial relationship with Buckingham. Things were chilly, but Calvert was not the type to burn bridges or to try to make enemies. And he'd pliantly gotten the hell out of the way at court and made himself scarce when the Spanish party had lost all favor. Calvert wasn't considered a threat by Buckingham, unlike some of Calvert's friends whom the Duke was actively holding down, and we'll have more about that in the next episode. And the letter continues with Calvert putting in a good word for a Mr. Lincoln, an honest Waterford merchant whose ship had been seized by English authorities for carrying Spanish goods while there was a war on. It seems that Mr. Lincoln had left on his trading venture before any hostilities had broken out, and before any decrees banning trade with Spain had come down. And it's a common enough problem in these days. You know, you're out at sea for months, and you don't know everything that's been going on back home. And he wasn't intentionally trying to break the law. Or maybe he's a smuggling scoundrel and he's just lying about it. Either way, Calvert goes to bat for him. And Calvert politely asks Buckingham if it were possible for the Duke to look into the case and maybe see if he can get Mr. Lincoln's ship back, if it were not too much trouble. I have no idea how things worked out for Mr. Lincoln, but this is a nice example of how the wheels of government still turned on things like personal relationships and patronage. If Mr. Lincoln didn't pay Calvert outright for the courtesy, 
No doubt there was some sort of favors being worked out in the background. Calvert's second letter to Buckingham would come in November 1626, wherein he reports to the Duke on a meeting he attended in Dublin held by the Lord Deputy and representatives of the counties. The topic of discussion being whether or not the Irish were going to be able to pony up for this new expanded Irish army. And Calvert would sing the praises of the Lord Deputy, fellow Newfoundland colonizer Lord Falkland, who had cleverly avoided a no vote on the scheme by kicking the can and having the representatives head back to their respective counties to find out what they could afford to pay. And we have records from other Irish luminaries writing accounts of the same meeting. The Earl of Westmeath specifically mentions Calvert attending and claims that Calvert could attest to the factuality of the Earl's version of events. So it seems that Calvert still has some esteem and a reputation of respectability and honesty a trusted pair of eyes and ears for the king's interests, as always. And I think Calvert's also signaling to Buckingham that he's on side. Both Buckingham and Falkland are very unpopular and embattled figures right now, as is King Charles. But Calvert still makes it clear which horse he's backing. And this may have helped keep Calvert's name at the top of the list when the next fickle turn of the political wheel threw him a curveball. In early 1627, Calvert would receive a summons from London. The war with Spain was becoming too much of a liability for Buckingham. He wanted peace. But this was a very delicate situation in this political atmosphere that had to be handled discreetly. And he reached out to certain members of the old Spanish party who he thought he could trust as advisors and diplomatic agents to this end. And so sometime around March 1627, only two years after his decision to leave, Sir George Calvert finds himself wrenched out of retirement and put on a ship heading back to England and back towards the whirlwind of royal court politics. I'm back in the saddle again. So there it is, folks, the mother of all rabbit holes. I think it was sometime in March I realized just how far I'd wandered and I wanted to set fire to this entire episode and start over. But sometimes it's just quicker and easier to dig yourself straight down through to China than it is to try and climb all the way back out of the hole. Quicker being a relative term in this instance, since once again I have taken six months to get an episode out. I can only humbly beseech you to take into account the length of this one and maybe consider it two or two and a half episodes. Believe it or not, it could have been longer. I cut out all kinds of stuff I'd previously written and recorded or pushed it to the next episode. But there were entire subjects I was dying to go on tangents about that I just couldn't justify, even to myself. Like, I really wanted to get into the bards. The were basically Irish rock stars of the day. They wielded considerable amount of social and political power in their capacity to praise or defame Irish chiefs and to whip up popular Gaelic opinion, a power the English authorities feared and resented and thus outlawed. And then there were pirates. Ireland was just a hive of pirates at this time, some of whom we already know, like Peter Easton, the notorious Newfoundland pirate we met back in episode 2.2. Richard Bagwell, in his book, Ireland Under the Stuarts, mentions nothing of Easton's legendary retirement as the Marquis of Savoy. Instead, he has Easton being ambushed and captured by the Dutch in 1613, where he was then taken back to Holland and probably hung. And well, that version is so simplistic and disappointing, it's probably true, isn't it? I will guarantee you that when we finally get to Father White and the Voyage of the Ark and the Dove, which at my current rate should be sometime in the year 2036, 
I will definitely be doing a bit on the sack of Baltimore, which actually kind of fits our narrative and is a great slice of Irish pirate history. Unless you were one of those people seized from their beds at night and sold into slavery in North Africa. I am hoping all of this Irish historical context will pay off for us down the road. Its history will continue right along with our narrative. In 1632, George Calvert's BFF, Sir Thomas Wentworth, will begin his infamous reign as Lord Deputy of Ireland. The Irish Rebellion of 1641 will help kick off the English Civil Wars, with both being part of the broader conflict conveniently packaged as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which I plan on making a very big deal of, because the coming conflicts change everything and will arguably affect Maryland worse than any other British colony in the Americas. It's definitely part of our history. And in our next episode, we will continue skipping merrily along down the path towards civil war. By delving into the zany carousel ride of British foreign policy between the years of 1625 and 1627. Where a series of diplomatic and military disasters will squander King Charles's popularity at home, lay bare England's ineffectual weakness abroad further bankrupt the crown, and throw away the lives of thousands of English soldiers and conscripts. And most of all, these debacles will seal the Duke of Buckingham's place as public enemy number one to the Parliament and to the people of England. We'll also meet back up with Calvert in England in early 1627, once more in the thick of royal diplomatic goings-on at court, trying to use whatever leverage he can to secure the revenue and the ships required for Governor Sir Arthur Aston's return to Avalon. But when the cookie finally crumbles, it will not be Aston, but Calvert himself boarding a ship bound for Newfoundland in June 1627. I'd like to thank you all so much again for listening, or even attempting to listen to this episode. I know it was a beast. I hope at the very least you learned a few things. I know I did. Now let us never speak of it again. My name is still Jared Books. This is still a history of Maryland, believe it or not. And you can still find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And I will see you again as soon as the great wheel of fate allows it. Until then, please, rock on. (laughs) 